Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. More people are discovering that the qualities you associate with your mind are not bound to your body. They're seeing that the brain isn't the self, that the brain is actually more an instrument you play, like a guitar or piano, than something that forms an intrinsic part of you. Like a piano, the brain can be tuned to get a clearer, more nuanced sound. Meditation is one way to tune it, but there are others, which science is bringing to the conversation. But who are you after the realization that you are not your brain or body? If you're not something that's material, are you even there at all? The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If you're enjoying this show, please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Share this episode with clients at the Wellness Center. Post about it on social media and leave a rating on iTunes. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Once upon a time, it was assumed that you are the product of your personal history and that that history is immutable. You could heal a trauma, even an unconscious one, but it took dedication to a therapeutic process. Only by committing to a slow, fearless exploration of your shadow with a trained professional talk therapist might you be able to unlock the prison door of your depression or neurosis. Then came the pharmaceutical wave that promised mental well-being through pills. The chemical reactions that manifested as consciousness could be pinpointed and controlled, the reasoning went. The next thing you knew, a large part of the country was medicating itself out of depression, anxiety, ADD. But pills turned out to be blunt instruments with unintended side effects. Then the neuroscientists discovered something remarkable. It was long assumed that after young adulthood, brain development simply stopped. But in fact, it turns out that your brain is continually growing and changing, with new neural connections developing in response to life experience. As these new neural patterns take hold, your thought patterns change. We learned that one way to redraw your neural map is through meditation, that the brain activity of longtime meditators is different and that they are less likely to suffer from stress, anxiety, and depression. If a discipline that teaches you a new way to think, like meditation, leads to a rewiring of your wetware, what other techniques might be used to arrive at similar results? That's the threshold we now stand at, looking ahead at the future of brain science, ever more finely tuned EEGs, 
allow us to glimpse the patterns of your neural activity that had, until now, been cloaked in mystery. Neurofeedback and transcranial magnetic stimulation give us tools for training your brain into new patterns of healthy, desired behavior. My guest today, Devin White, is weaving these emerging technologies into a new kind of therapeutic practice at Field, which he describes as a cutting-edge brain optimization company specializing in personalized, precision-based neuroenhancement. The Field says that they are seeing benefits to clients who come with issues ranging from depression and stress to ADD and PTSD. They also offer life-enhancing therapies that support cognitive enhancement, deeper interpersonal connection, and relaxation. Devin approaches this territory not as a neuroscientist or technologist, though he has real knowledge in these areas, but he comes to this frontier as an advanced meditator obsessed with the workings of consciousness. Devin White has over 20 years of experience in performance coaching and human energy systems. He's a futurist, as well as a global speaker on the intersection of technology and wellness. This episode is a fascinating dive into Devin's own process of exploring consciousness modalities, which led him down this path. It was a wonderful, revealing conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. 
there's an S in there, and searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. What does the field do? So the field is a neuroenhancement company. And what we do is people come in and we look at their brain. First, first we take an assessment of their life, of their past medical history, of you know, how, how they're thinking about things, what the relationship was like with key figures in their life when they were younger, a, a, a real overall multidimensional assessment of who they are, where they've come from, and really what their goals are. Then we put a cap on their head and we do what's called a quantitative EEG. So we're looking at their brain waves, both with their eyes open and with their eyes closed. And what that does is it tells us about how their brain is functioning. They also are going to usually give us a, a symptoms checklist. They're going to go through a neurodiagnostic evaluation, and it's highly correlated with areas of their brain. So we're looking at that, then we're looking at the EEG, and now we have an understanding of who you are, how your brain works, why it works that way. Every brain is unique, and, and this is really important. There's a lot of brain technology that's coming out on the market, more consumer-based stuff, which is very exciting and also a little concerning to me because it's your brain. And we've looked at lots and lots of different brains and we've seen depression and anxiety and stress and high functionality, and it looks different in every brain. There are definitely similarities that you get between one case of depression and another, but they're going to roll out into lots of different categories of depression. So the way that it, it maps is to understand, okay, knowing that you had this relationship with your father when you were young gives us some perspective based on what you tell us, both in the opening questionnaire and during our conversations, this is what's going on. If you tell us that, you know, I'm really stressed out with people, I have a really hard time relating to people, and what we read in your questionnaire is, my father used to just brutally yell at me every time that I did anything wrong, we have some understanding of like where that may have come from. So we're looking at early imprints in terms of you know behavioral and psychological moments in your life that might have patterned something in early on. And then we can see, we want to correlate it with what's actually happening in your brain. And then what can you do about it? We can update it. Right, so the, the cool thing I, about I, I, so as soon as you start saying like you want to update my brain, I get a little nervous. So give me an Fair idea enough. what that actually means. Back when I was a kid, it was like you, the brain never regen, never gives off new neurons. What you have is what you have, and if you destroy some of those neurons, they're gone forever. But that's not true. We now know neurogenesis happens. You can stimulate neurogenesis, so new neurons. You can stimulate new neural connections. Neuroplasticity is real, so your brain can really consistently change, and you can even train it to be more plastic, to be more malleable, which is an evolutionarily positive thing because it means you're more adaptive, you're more flexible to whatever's coming your way. Right. So we realize that people actually do have neuroplasticity, and that growth can be channeled and focused in a particular way. You can choose to develop 
you can make it into something deliberate around an objective that you set. Exactly. So um, how? So how is using a, a variety of neuromodulation techniques. What does that mean exactly? Okay, so the first is neurofeedback. This has been around for decades. It's very well studied. It's very effective, especially when used in an expertly guided way. And essentially what you're doing is you're looking at the brain and then you're setting goals for it. So if we look at someone who comes in and let's say it's a, it's, it's a kid who has ADD or they have ADHD. And what we see is slow firing, slow waves firing in their left front. And so we know that that's a commonly associated aspect of ADD. And so we want to speed those brain waves up a little bit. Now, what happens if you give them drugs is it's going to go through the drugs affect the entire pathway of the neurotransmitter. So you may be turning up the dopamine or the serotonin, but it's not in a targeted way. It's going through the whole brain. But it doesn't necessarily need it everywhere. It may need it in just this targeted area. So what we're doing with neurofeedback is we're going, okay, hey, we want, you're only, you're, you're showing a lot of theta and alpha in your front left, right, which is the part of the top-down executive control. So we say, we, we want to see a little more beta there, which is a faster brain wave, which allows that part of the brain to go, hey, hey, everybody, this, this is what we're doing. It's time to wake up. It's time to pay attention. Time to focus. Time to think linearly. Here's how it goes. So what neurofeedback does is it's looking at your brain, and every time that beta wave comes, it gives you a sound. It goes, bing. Or we could have you watching a video, and if, it's, if we're getting a lot of slow waves, the video is going to get grainy, it's going to slow down, and then all of a sudden, when, when the beta waves are coming again, the video starts playing again, so you're getting feedback at an unconscious level of you're doing the right thing. And so it starts to train your brain to fire these patterns off. Well, actually, it sounds like from the way you describe it, that you train your brain and that the tools are there to help you know when you're in a particular brain state or to understand that you're doing it right. Is that kind of? That, that's very much what happens. We, now, we can give it, we can massage it. So we can give it some TDCS, right, which is a little bit of a magnetic pulse. I'm sorry, what a TD, what TDCS. That, that's something you strap to your forehead? Like, what is it, that actually? It's, it, it's basically like a nine-volt battery that's, that's going, you know, send current in this direction. So it's it, not particularly powerful. We use another tool. Oh, but called, it's a stimulant. It, it's it, actually stimulating. It's stimulating. The, the it's creating a magnetic field. So, and by doing that, stimulating the magnetic field, you're feeling that, or you're sensing what it's like to have that area active in a way you may not be used to. Exactly. So then instead of just waiting until we see the brainwaves that we're interested in, it's going, fire this brainwave, fire this brainwave. Ooh, you're there. Fire this brainwave. You did it. Fire this brainwave. You did it. So you're getting double feedback. We're giving your brain a little encouragement to do something that it's doing anyway, just not as much as you want in order to get the results that you want. And then when your brain does it, it gets the reward of the video moves forward. Fascinating. Okay. So that's, and then there's one other piece, which is sort of the, the heavy hitter, which is TMS. That's transcranial magnetic stimulation. And that's a much more powerful magnetic burst. What does that look like? Like if I walk in your office, like how, how do I get that? So when you walk into the office, it, it looks like it's a Tesla coil, essentially wrapped in polymer. 
and it's white and we sit it on your head it's bent a little bit you know at a, at a slight angle so maybe you know, 160 degrees and we put it at the part of your brain that we want to either activate or tell hey let's reset for so a minute it's a little bit like a skull cap so like bigger than that i mean it's it's just like this oh yeah it's, it's just like this meaning your hand is like cupped. like my hand is my hand cupped is essentially, you know, it's a little bit bigger than that. Okay. Oh, yeah. So about six inches or something. Yeah. Okay. So we're putting that on and that tells the brain either, hey, do this, go faster, you know, activate this area. Or it's the brain's doing the wrong thing there. It's sending some weird waves and it goes, hey, stop. Let's reset for a minute. Let's reset. And when I have that on my head and I'm feeling it do its thing, is it tingly? Like what, what is the sensation? Um... The sensation with that is a little more than tingly, a little less than having, you know, it's, it's like that on, on your head. So for me, I feel it more because I don't have any hair. So I'm kind of close to you there. Yeah. So someone that comes in, they have a lot of hair, they feel it less. You know, I'll put a little like napkin on my head between, put something in between just to soften it. But it, you know, it's not particular. it's, it's. Let's say there's a little discomfort, but for the results that you're getting, it's very, it's very low. And then how long does that session go when you got this thing strapped to your head? That piece of it can run anywhere from, uh, let's say, six minutes to 12 minutes. Oh, so it's short. 18 minutes. Yeah. I mean, a, a whole session usually runs about an hour. So we do a lot of EEGs. We're big fans of mapping. So we look at your brain. Then we give you TMS. Then we look at your brain again. Then we give you neurofeedback, which is we're still looking at your brain. In, in neurofeedback, we're still doing an EEG, essentially. So we're looking at your brain and we're monitoring what's happening. And we're giving it encouragement to do the thing that we want it to do. And then we look at it again at the end. And now we have you know, many data points of what your brain looked like when you came in, what it looked like in the middle, what it looked like at the end. So we're constantly tracking the landscape and the changing of what's happening in your brain so that we keep really close tabs on it. So the way you described it before, it sounds like this is really well suited for ADD. This becomes a more targeted way to address the physiological issue, right? Absolutely. Okay. So in, that... in fact, I'd say it's easier to diagnose taking brain maps. It, it, otherwise, what's happening is a psychiatrist or a psychologist is talking to you and they're getting the symptoms and there's a host of drugs that they could use to treat something like ADD or ADHD, but they're not, you don't know which one it is. So they give it to you and it takes three or six weeks to know if that's the one that's working. But if it's bathing your whole brain rather than just the targeted area, it may not work. And in fact, it may be contraindicated. You may have side effects that you really don't want. So this allows us to give a more definitive diagnosis of ADD or ADHD and then treat it. And we've actually seen a, a significant reduction in meds from people who have come to see us. So not always. And sometimes we say, you know, I think your brain is really going to benefit from medication. But for those of us out there who are like, if I can not drug my kid up as a first choice, I'm, ha- I'm willing to do it if it's going to really support them. But I'd rather know that we've done every natural viable option before that, this gives us another path in. And how long does the actual diagnosis take? Is it a single, you know, intake test? Single intake. And you can tell somebody's got ADD at that point. Someone comes in, 
we're going to run the test. If they came in with a, you know, someone else diagnosed them with ADD, we're going to just further that. We're going to give that definitive diagnosis and we'll give them a brain, you know, their brain maps to show and we'll say, okay, this is why, this is how, you know, how we're correlating that data. Uh, we give them what, what we call a know yourself better report. And it's, here's how your brain works. Here, here's how the brain works in general. Here's how your brain works in specific. Here are your brain maps. Here's the firing patterns. And here's what they mean. Here's what they mean to you. And here's what you can do about it. Some of it is training with us and some of it is lifestyle adjustment. So you end up giving somebody essentially a, a program of how they can behave in order to affect the, affect the problem. The, the diagnosis is the beginning of a process. And then how long does that process go on for? For somebody, would you say? So it's it's dependent on the individual, and, and I want to just add in something, which is we don't ever give TMS to kids. That's an over eighteen thing. Uh huh. Um, but neurofeedback, no problem. Uh, you know, once once they hit a certain age, in terms of the the actual treatment, depends, 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 depends on the brain, uh, depends on the plasticity of the brain, how quickly they respond. So the FDA, TMS is now an FDA-approved treatment for depression. Um, there's more, more treatments that are becoming FDA-approved with TMS. We use both on-label and off-label treatments because we found that there's a, lot, there's a lot more that it's good for. And in fact, some of the things are contraindicated. And, you know, whereas the normal prescription is we're going to treat front left to, to activate that, to turn that area on, what we may want to do is actually lower front right because there's going to be a natural leveling up of the front left because if you turn the right up, the left goes down a little bit. If you turn the front up, the back goes down a little bit, top to bottom same. So there's a lot of tweaking. There's a lot of tweaking. It's very personalized. But FDA says 20 to 30 sessions. Generally, we find that's a, that's a good number. Um, kids are a little different because they're constantly changing. I mean, their brain is really growing rapidly. Plus, there's hormonal shifts. They're in school. Their emotions are all over the place. So we like to correlate it with, how have you been? What happened this week? What's going on? And, you know, because we see your brain's in a totally different place. So the, the spikes go up and down and up and down. But they're generally going to trend towards the goal state that, that they came in for. This is really cutting-edge stuff. How many places are there, aside from the field, that actually are offering this kind of approach to to, to, to to dealing with brain issues? Uh, very few. There, there are pieces of this all over the place. There are places that use just TMS, but I've called and I said, hey, how many EEGs do you do? And they say, EEGs, that's a, that's a research tool. And I'm like, well, I'd like you to research my brain if you're going to be treating it with uh, magnetic bursts. So it's still it, it's still a viable treatment. I think they see like seventy percent effectiveness with depression. So it, it's being used, but in a much more targeted way. And and in general, a lot of this stuff, like a lot of science, a lot a lot of academia, it's very siloed. So it's EEG over here, neurofeedback over here, TMS over here, and we're researching TMS applied to you know front left or front right or the parietal lobe, or very very specific things. Whereas the approach that we're using is behavioral outcomes, and we're using really high standards of safety and information gathering to first look at who they are and how they're functioning, and then treat them in a step-by-step -step process so that we're constantly getting that feedback that I'm not really seeing anywhere else. So you're really weaving these different aspects together into a new kind of program. Exactly.
What got you into this? What got I, consciousness has been it's it's all I've ever been interested in since I left behind like garbage pail kid cards. I stepped into this and, you know, I mean, I, it was like I was walking in, I put my foot in it and I just, I was fascinated and I spent most of my teenage years just dialing in and out my consciousness, figuring out like what the parameters were. So when you say consciousness, that word for you, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? It means the the lens of perception, right? So our our perceptual lens, I think Aldous Huxley's, Huxley said that the fundamental function of consciousness is to limit information. And as we get older, what's happening is our brain goes from all of these like pluripotent cells, that, you know, they're just ready to do anything. And by, let's say, age five, whatever language we've, or languages we've been immersed in, those are turned into pathways that we're, now we're like, we're on rails for that particular language or languages. and all of a sudden there's a chemical dump and other neurons that would be dedicated to that kind of linguistic learning are, are essentially, you know, chemical bathed away. And the ones that are there that are firing English, in my case, are now myelinated so that they're easier to grow and strengthen, right? So there's like a fatty sheath that goes around the nerves that goes like, more here, use it or lose it. And when you use it, you get more of it. What Huxley was suggesting is that Every, every time that happens, we become more specialized and we limit what we're aware of. There's a great, great weird study where they took cats and I think they're kittens. They took kittens and they put them inside of a crib, basically a crib, right? A box, I think, that had vertical lines. And they took another set of kittens and they put it inside of boxes that had horizontal lines. And they put them in there, I think, three hours a day for six weeks. At the end of the six-week period these kittens turning into cats, the ones that were in the, the boxes that had only vertical lines couldn't see horizontal lines. So they wouldn't be able to see the top of a table, whereas the ones that were in the box that had horizontal lines, they would walk into the table legs because they couldn't see horizontal lines. So our brain is really being shaped by the input that we're getting from, from our life, from whatever context we're given. And for me, I went, well, I don't know, you know, how do you know what context you're in other than, you know, you're familiar with it. You're, the context you're in is the only one you've ever known. Yeah. How do you know that you're not seeing the horizontal lines? It was, for me, the you beginning don't. of... You don't. You don't. You, you don't. don't. Right. But you can begin to go, let me go deeper than these imprints that I know that I have, even though I don't know what they are. And as you start to go deeper and deeper into, if we call all of those things, all of those imprints that kind of like set your mind in this way that, that makes you more you, but also makes you more limited. And we call that your ego, right? For me, ego, it's useful if we use it in a useful way. And to, to call everything that we've turned into egoic pieces of ourselves and go, oh, but we can also start to dissolve this. We can go back to something deeper that my mentor's mentor called the generative imprint, right? So before any of this learning, there was something that basically your DNA had wound into you, this way of being which was generative. And no matter what culture you were born into, and no matter how you grew up, as long as you were well-formed in each of these networks of intelligence, your physical health and your movement and you know, your imagination and memory, and et cetera, et cetera, 
you'd be in a continually generative state, glasses half full, essentially, right? And, and you'd be able to make profoundly good choices that led you to a life that was an aesthetic expression of who you were born to be and what your place is in the larger organism of humanity. So anyway, that going down deeper and deeper into that for me was about sort of getting to getting to that reset point, getting to something that was deeper than those ego-prescribed experiences of what was happening around me. I'm curious, like, how it opened up for you, right? So were there, was there a key experience that opened you up to seeing things through that lens where you realized, oh, I, I need to go here? There, there was a key experience, uh, and it was falling in love with a girl becoming best friends with her, being totally friend-zoned without having any idea. You know, friend-zoned didn't exist back then. It existed as an experience, but it didn't have the label yet. Now we can cleverly say, oh, dude, you've been totally friend-zoned. I was friend-zoned. <laughs> she was my best friend. And it was amazing. And I would get home every day and I would be just totally excited to pick up my cordless phone, which was really hot technology back then. We had just escaped the cord. And I'd call her up and we'd have this conversation for half an hour, 45 minutes, two hours, because we were teenagers and it was amazing. And, oh, you know, I mean, you can see it even looking at me. Like, yeah. I'm just, I was in love. It was the best experience I had ever had. She's entered the room right now, like in a kind of spiritual Boom. way. I can totally. see her coming through the wall. Yeah, that's yeah. that's it. So she's here and she lit me up. And I, and I lived inside of that experience for, I don't know, six, eight, nine months. Till the end of the year, she was having a party. They were moving. I was, it was going to be my big moment. I was going to make my move before she moved. And I got there and damn it, if the first thing that I saw wasn't his arm around my best friend. Oh, yeah, oh, man. We all know this. We all know this. Yes. So I was devastated. I, I, I hung in. Eventually, my mom picked me up in, in her little metallic blue Subaru. I hopped in waterworks and... I can hear my, my, you know, barely pubescent voice in my head going, oh, never gonna, never gonna get to feel this way. She's never gonna know that I felt like this. I think I told her later on. I, I, and in that moment, though, I went, oh my God, she never even knew. And it like this light bulb went off that, holy shit, this has all been in my head. This has all been some crazy chemical cocktail that I've been making alone in my room with her on the other side of the phone, but like self-generated. It wasn't like her wildly in love pheromones were interlocking with mine. I, I was just there making it happen. And at that moment, I went, wow, I can have this. I can have this state. I'm going to figure out how to do this because if I did it without her in the first place, I can keep doing it without her. Oh, that's so good. So you realized that the happy, love, open-hearted state did not depend on anything outside of yourself. Yes. I wish I got that in high school. Oh, geez. That would have made my life so much better. So that's a big spiritual hit. It was it was solid. And then I was learning to meditate and I was doing yoga and whatever else kind of flowed through my path to expand or change my consciousness to find out like, well, well what how how's my how's my filter been limited? How can I how can I change that? So this has really been a powerful lifelong pursuit for you. 
And did you get deep into a particular practice? Did you find one that really called you that you stuck with? I experimented a lot early on. There was a lot of like chakra meditation. I had a I had a woman who was a psychic. I found her in the Penny Saver. Um, oh, the Penny Saver. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah. I remember that from Westchester days. It was Craigslist for a less modern age. Those were the days. Okay, print, print. Print. Yeah. And, and <laughs> she was, she was a, a, a reverend and a psychic, and, and she was offering psychic classes. I, I think I was about 16 because I drove over to her. She looked at me and like she went, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to channel. Her face changed and she said, oh, you ate broccoli last night. Your body likes it. And I was like, looking at my face, like wiping stuff off because I, I had eaten broccoli. And I was like, <laughs> to this day, I, I still am like a little biased towards broccoli. <laughs> and I understand. She told me one other thing, which was that I was with this, uh, she said, you're with this blonde, but there's this brunette circling. And I was like, brunette? What? And it was this girl who I, who I thought was cute for my driver's ed class, but I was totally smitten with my girlfriend so she said you're going to be with the with the brunette and i was like there's no way three weeks later at my junior prom my girlfriend dumped me Ooh. and i was devastated and i was and i was even i was like i already learned this mm -hmm. lesson how could i how can i feel this why can't i tap into the love and i was meditating trying to get back into there which is the real practice that was the practice you asked me about my primary practice it was in the beginning think of that girl so I could generate the state and then decoupling the state from the girl so it wasn't like creepy. Right? So I could just be like, okay, I can do this on my own now. Okay, so I'd get into the state and then I'd associate it with light. That seemed to be a common meditative practice. So I would breathe in light and I would breathe in the feeling. And then I would go through my day and I would, like, I would think of the next day and I would breathe this light out into the next day, into all of the experiences. And I'd pick some key experiences. Like I know I have this interaction or there's a person who I want to really connect with or a test I wanted, whatever it was. And I would breathe light into those key events and then I'd let it go. And I'd take a little bit of a note and then the next day I'd go through my day and at the end of the day I'd say like success or, or total failure. And then I'd go back and I'd reaccess the state, get into it, and then I would think back to the disaster. Because what happens is when you have a terrible experience, the strongest state wins. Right. So I'd be in this really generative state that I was good at, but then I had this cripplingly embarrassing situation that happened with somebody in school. And the gravitational, emotional pull of that was so immense. I'd go to it and I'd be like, Ugh. and then I'd have to go back and I'd, I'd re get into the state. And then I'd think of the, you know, the devastating experience again. I'd go back and forth and then I would breathe through it and I would remember it. I would accept the experience as it happened. I would put it back into that experience and I would remember it in the past and all of a sudden it became a resource rather than this like issue that was defining me as I moved forward. So in high school, you, through your meditation practice, basically came across a early version of the reprogramming, repatterning practice that people now use and talk about for changing neural pathways around trauma around blockages. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, I mean, that's actually incredibly cool. So, I, I, mean, I mean, I mean, I know it wasn't that sophisticated, but. It was, it yeah. was that, but I was yeah. also reading from people who were giving me clues. Going in, the, going in this direction. And spending a 
ridiculous. You know, it's high school. I didn't have any. I had a job and I had school, but I had plenty of time to sit on my butt. Yeah, but also you had the ability to kind of sit still enough to go there and to feel it and to notice it in your body, to feel the difference between the the down state and the high state, and then have the discipline and focus to be able to bring yourself to the high state rather than just get into the miasma of the down state. Is goal oriented in a way. Very goal oriented. Very even goal when it, oriented. Even when it became the goal is to have no goal, yeah. you know, it, yeah. you have to figure out how to resolve that paradox. When did that happen? Thankfully, because I had a lot of time, because I was in high school and I had, you know, my, my job was as a lifeguard. So even there, I had time to think. One of my primary influences, in addition to that psychic, right? Because I, once I like vetted her, because I ended up being with the brunette, and that, that's when I went, no shit, this, she's got it. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I studied, you know, past life regression and channeling, but really she taught me how to meditate. She taught me how to visualize and meditate. And I had a group of what I called my, my blue haired beauties because I was 16 and it was me and these like group of 50 to 70 year olds, <laughs> women. <laughs> and my best friend, like the one or two times that I dragged him there. And awesome. I love this. Oh my God. That, so what a scene. Yeah. Up in Dutchess County. And they and they were they were wonderful and so super encouraging. And one of them was not. She was actually probably in her 30s. And she was she was a genius. She was a, a chemist and something else. And you know, one one time she was like, Oh, Devin, my favorite thing about chemistry was making DMT. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was a geneticist also and she was like the best astrologer I've ever met and when did you first do DMT oh the assumption Ken oh I'm sorry I'm just sort of jumping ahead <laughs> uh, uh, many many years later and uh, which was which was great it was you know interesting to shed my mortal coil in that particular dynamic rocket ship out into the super cosmos multi-universe And just as interesting to, you know, come back in. I had other influences. There was this guy who, he, he had a couple kids in high school, but he would mosey on through. He was probably about 60 years old, incredibly religious, um, but in a very open-hearted way. He didn't care that I believed in Christianity. He cared that I was a hard-open seeker. And so he would bring me these beautiful readings that... You know, one of them was the difference between Eros and Philios and Agape. And that really framed like, oh, I think all of these ultimately get filtered into Agape. So this universal love, which is what I've been developing. And so there was a lot of philosophical stuff around it. But somewhere in there, I started going, oh, it seems like what a lot of these people are saying is that at some point you're taking a boat over the river and you have to get out of the boat and the goal is no goal. And you can't be overly fascinated by the cities, the the magic powers that come from these disciplines of the mind. You have to like go, oh, that's cool. And keep going. Breathe, breathing, breathing, keep going, keep going. So it started in high school. I think some of my strongest development in my whole life was was during my high school years and then into college, uh, for sure, because I still get a lot of time. And, and there I designed my own major to be about consciousness. In terms of the skill set you developed, did you study the brain? I, I did study the brain. I started in 
college. Uh, I, I chose a college that would let me major in Aleister Crowley because I Who, thought what what school was that? <laughs> that was Bard College. Aha! Yeah, my sister went to Bard. Okay. Okay. So I, I, <laughs> I didn't know about Bard. tell what is Bard? Explain Bard for folks. Uh, I think there's. I think it's still their slogan is a place to think. And the way that I found it is I told my guidance counselor, I want to go to a college that has all of the intellectual outcasts from across America and the world. And he said, that's right in our backyard. It's called Bard. I said, whoa. <laughs> and when I got there, there was this like beautiful earth mama with these big dreads. And she was like, hey, I'll be taking you on your tour today. And you know, it's a group of us. And she said... You know, we're, we're walking through and first thing, I, I stepped out of the car with my mom and it was like the clouds parted and the sun shone down on me. And I, I, I was like, this is, this is my place. Back in the day, it, they wanted you to have good grades, but they cared about who you were. You know, what did your essay look like? How did you interview? What kind of weirdo were you? And it was a lot of, was a lot of weirdos. You know, when this woman said, she's, she's telling us about the place. She said, you know what I love? No one tells me what I can drink or where I can smoke what I want to smoke or when I can play my drums. And I was like, I don't know why I'd want to play my drums anywhere, but that sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds kind of perfect. So, so and it's the kind of school where you can say, I would like to study Alistair Crowley. Exactly. Now, for a guy who's interested in the light and openness to that generative aspect of existence, Crowley is an is a interesting choice. To pursue. What was it about Crowley? He a little dark. He he's a he's a dark but weird dude. Yeah. And and I think that he a lot of his darkness was sardonic. He's a poet. He scaled Everest. You know, and his he was coming from this magical tradition, and he was he was virulently uh, sort of gone after in in popular culture, much like Leary, who wrote, I think, Diary of a Hope Fiend, which was modeled after Crowley's Diary of a Dope Fiend. I found Crowley through Leary, who I found through Wilson. So there was a thread. Wilson talks about him extensively. And what I loved about him was, at the end of the day, the thing that stood out most to me was, first and foremost, the whole of the law shall be do with that will. Love is the law, love under will. So he was disciplined. Do, do what you're going to do. There are no real morals. Moral boundaries were set up by, for example, religions. And all the religions all had different boundaries, dependent often on the culture and what you needed in that culture. So the you're looking at morals that help a functioning society work properly. So they're valuable and they became doctrinized in a way that for, for our generation is a little outdated for me anyway. For, and for many people, you know, we're looking to a more agnostic spirituality where it doesn't have to be, you know, one patriarchal God who's telling you, if you don't believe me, you're going to burn for the rest of eternity. So he was saying, look, they're all useful. They offer rituals and they give these valuable guidelines. But at the end of the day, 
It's about understanding that some things are good for you and some things are bad for you. When these religions say, don't be overly emotional, hey, that's something I can get behind. The first thing that you're going to learn how to do if you're studying Crowleyan, you know, methods is breathe, pranayama, because you can undo or subdue all emotions and just have them, instead of being a tidal wave, it's just a river and they flow through and it's a beautiful natural experience. So you're deeply in these practices. You've been doing these practices now since you were a kid, basically. And, but at a certain point, you're getting pulled into this technology. Yes. And the technology is essentially, for a lot of people, it's a way of bypassing the practices. Is it? Uh, like, what happened? Like, so tell me how you got to this. All right. So to finish that up, I pivoted off of Crowley after my first semester. I said, wow. this is not the future of consciousness. This is the past. And he ultimately was, he was a little bit bitter, I think, because even though he knew it was possible, the technology wasn't there yet. You know, now we have people who have actually, there was a guy who turned lead into gold just because he was rich and he could afford a particle accelerator to blast the lead until it turned into gold and solve that old alchemical, you know, problem. So I, I then started studying physics, especially quantum mechanics and relativity and neuroscience, and still, and then I designed my own major. It was called Realities, Which You Can Get Away With, The Pragmatic Navigation of Consciousness. Designed it. I ended up- Get away with. Get away with. Well, it was a Wilson book. Oh, yeah. That was the name of his book. So right, okay. I thought it was, it, right. it was fun. And I ended up, you know, it's barred. I taught a class there. I was studying outside. I was studying neuro-linguistic programming with Richard Bandler and John Laval. I did that for a number of years during college. So I was working, flying out, and I was going out. I already knew how to blank my consciousness out, like how to blank my mind. So I would just go, whatever this dude is doing, I'm going to learn. I'd already been reading the books in high school, so it was, I was there. I was ready. And a lot of the NLP formed, you know, some of the next scaffolding of how my consciousness worked, which was thinking about consciousness from a structural point of view rather than a highly content point of view, highly content-driven. What are the actual, for those who don't know, NLP's actual kind of core, like, teaching in terms of, like, a skill set? Anything that anyone can do, you can do too. You just have to know how to model them. That's one of their core teachings. A lot of it is that consciousness is structural, that the experience that each and every one of us has is sensorially based. So your five senses plus proprioception, they're not really talking about that. But as, as you and I are talking, anyone who's listening is hearing the words. Some people are repeating the words to themselves because they subvocalize. Some people are talking to themselves about what's happening because they subvocalize. Some people are making florid images some people are relating these things to the past in the concept database of memories. Some people are, are having memories that are driven by olfaction. Oh my God, I remember that. All of a sudden they have a burst of smell and they're back to when they're you know 12 years old and having a realization of their own. That's all stuff that NLP is going, this matters. When someone is having, for example, a phobic response, they're accessing, everyone does it differently, but they may see a puppy and then all of a sudden the puppy triggers this image in their mind of a Doberman pincher that, that bit them and it's 
billboard size and two feet in front of their face and it's snarling and it's a movie and all of a sudden their heart rate goes through the roof and their all panic reflex goes on and they're like <gasps> and they can't breathe and they start talking to themselves really quickly like this and all of a sudden the, the image just gets bigger and closer and, and being able to watch someone do that and know that that's happening because you see all of a sudden their their pupils go like and they zoom in and they you know look at this freaking huge dog and their skin tone changes and you can then you see their eyes reference a place and you know that that means they're talking to themselves or that means they're accessing silence and you can begin to work with that rather than strictly the content going you know like tell me more about it from there is that a decent explanation that's really good appreciate that and and there's lots of meta programs some people think in rules some people think in options some people think you know more in feeling some people think more in visuals or auditory right so you can start to understand everyone everyone has all of these capacities you can do it in every way but people have meta programs that they run so it started to develop for me the the real drive towards taking the metaphor of the brain as a computer to its logical conclusion and what is that a human operating system so if you if you go okay the brain is a computer that was said in the 50s i think turing might have said that this is like a brain, you know. When yeah, he was it actually goes a little earlier than that. I think, whatever, Neumann. Now yes, I no, when, yeah. von Neumann. Now von you're Neumann. right. Exactly yeah. it. So this is going, all right, let's 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 take it further. And now the human operating system, you see it in more and more articles. But this was really going, okay, well, what does it mean if we have a human operating system? How does that work? And I started to look at how computers were built around a kernel and what, what do the operating systems look like and what were the levels of programming. So knowing that it's not really a human operating system, but that it's a more robust metaphor than anything we had before, I started to dial it in I, because I was studying with them. And then I, I pivoted. I moved on from Richard and John. You know, I, I love them with all my heart. It was amazing. And I just found someone who was the next fit for me, who was really about coming from a deep place of center and accessing a gen- the generative form of the individual. So his, his attitude, this is his name is Joseph Riggio. His, his perspective on it was much more, fuck being anybody other than yourself. Don't model what anyone else can do. Be yourself and be the best version of yourself brings us back to that generative imprint model of his mentor, which is, there's a way you were born to be, which is perfect. And if you've lost sight of that or you've lost access to it for some reason, it's okay. We can access that. And so for a a number of years, over a decade, my primary kind of position in the world was learning and accessing that for other people. So people would come to me and I was my one thing that I could do was I'm going to get you into this state by the end of our session or your money back and I'm going to teach you how you do it. So as someone accesses it, you know, everyone's had a moment where they felt amazing. They felt like, you know, the sun is out and it's perfect even if it's raining. And when they, when you start to talk to them and you ask them questions about it in order to make sense of 
just the question, right? So I go, tell me about one of these moments where you, you just were at your best absolutely. In the moment before words come out of their mouth, they access the experience. They go, and you'll see, you ask anyone any question, but especially a deeply meaningful question. And you'll see they'll like take a breath and their eyes will float up or wherever it goes. And, you know, maybe they're 48 degrees up into the right off the horizon and they're three feet out and they access this immense auditory, you know, silence and they breathe in and, and you see like the, there's lower erector spini and their back are engaging and then their abdominal muscles engage and they go, yeah, I have one of those. For everyone, it's not that easy for everyone. Some people take a lot of work to get them settled into it. But I'm tracking, like a biofeedback machine, these subtle micromuscular adjustments, and then I start to feed it back outside of their awareness and amplify it until it's full blown, and whatever the inhibitory state that they came in with no longer has that pull on their nervous system. Now they're in the state that is essentially them. From here, it's just about teaching them how to do it so they can fire it off for themselves. It's not like a mantra that you give everyone. For them, it's a very specific thing. We get a word or a phrase, which you can never describe it really, but it's a trigger. Helps them remember, oh wait, there's this other way that I have of being that I like better. And through time, through decision-making, through discipline, they can have that more and more of their life. And when you make all of your decisions from this place, all of a sudden your life becomes more and more of an expression of this version of yourself. You're starting to design a life that is resonant with who you are and who you want to be. So this is training a kind of, sounds to me, from what you describe it, a kind of meditation-like practice for somebody. It, it, this is very much like a fourth way, like Gurdjieffian, you know, my practice is my life. And using that, getting to a particular state within the meditation, where you're kind of open and relaxed at a certain level, where you're really allowing things to rise within you that you can pay attention to that you can then work with in a collaborative conscious way as opposed to being dominated by the unconscious forces that are that are driving a hundred percent okay and, and even more i would say it's settling so deeply into that place that it is you know you're not even working you you are making decisions from here so your life becomes more resonant and your environment holds you in this place without you having to cognitively get in there and tinker around with it all the time. From the way I hear it, and this is my woo way of operating in the world, is it's, it feels like a, a pragmatic approach to using these meditative tools that come from a spiritual context, but focusing them not on a spiritual objective so much as on a daily you know, how to, how to be in the world in a healthy way. The spiritual is built in. No, the spiritual is built. This is what I'm curious about, because when somebody starts to develop that kind of practice for themselves, where they're able to get to that level of, of calm and clarity and essentially uh, quiet themselves at a certain point, I'm wondering how often you found that people then started to get into a kind of spiritual epiphany where things would, well, essentially they're seeing light with their eyes closed and they're going, what the fuck was that? People who I worked closely with, like people who went, okay, we're going to go 
I'm hiring you. We're going to, we had a longer term engagement. Part of what I put in my contracts was you're going to start noticing more and more synchronicities, which is like the everyday form of the epiphany. Holy shit. Things are just starting to, man, I thought that the other day and there it is. And I, part of putting it in the contract is so they'd start to look for it. But part of it is that I just noticed that that's what happens. The more you're in that state, the more you start to notice that kind of stuff. For some people, that's cool. And you can kind of glide into that. You don't actually go too deep with it, but it's like, it's kind of reassuring because it creates a sense of love surrounding you and engulfing you. You feel supported mm -hmm. by the universe that is actually there as your friend. But for some other people, it can open up a can of worms that can be pretty challenging. Absolutely. You, you are working with that too? 100%. And so how, how would that express itself? I'm curious. I mean, when I first started, because I decided to not go for higher degrees, you know, I, I got my BA and I was happy with that. And I was really disappointed with the field of psychology. And so I, you know, and, the and family I- family business. The family business. And I saw that there were other fields that were really doing tremendous things, NLP being one of them. I was working with some of the top change makers I'd ever seen. I mean, they, the results they were getting were so profound. And psychology in the 90s was in the dark ages. Positive psychology now, which is cool, it's doing interesting stuff, but it's doing stuff that they had developed in the 70s. And that really, the Buddha was doing thousands of years ago. You know, all of this stuff, it's like, we're just rediscovering things that have been being done for so, so long. And when I, you know, for me, it was like, well, I had to prove myself to myself. So I'm going to work with, give, give me the worst cases out there. If you've been through, you know, electroshock therapy and, you know, I had a woman who came in, she'd been through 50 rounds of ECT, which is like, I didn't even think that was legal. You're not supposed to do more than 12 or something. She hadn't been out of bed in years. She was just every med, psychologist, psychiatrist, medical doctors, no one had moved the needle. They told her that she was clinically depressed and untreatable, which sounded like a very damning uh, diagnosis to me. And it was just like, here, medicate the you away. And you can just sit in your bed and so she came and, and we worked together and she was very, very difficult. And what she presented was, I, you know, I tried to do the same thing. People come in and they present their issues and I, and I listen. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a listener than some of the people in kind of my, my peer group of that training modality, um, just because it's how I roll. And, and all this, at some point I have heard enough that I felt like I really got it. And I go like, okay, enough of that. Tell me about a time when that wasn't. And They'd go, you know, this one particular woman I'm thinking of came in and her big goal was, I want to take a shower. If I can do that by the end of the session, I'll be very happy. And I said, I'm going to give you your check back because that is the least exciting goal I can possibly think of. Let, let's say this. If I can guarantee that you're going to be able to take a shower, what's something that comes next? What would be a little bit more exciting and would get me interested in like continuing this, this conversation? And she said, I used to, I used to make a lot of dinners for my friends. So if I could, if I could cook dinner for a bunch of friends, I said, done. Okay. 
as I'm eliciting the state from her, she accesses it, and then and it looks like this. I said, like, you know, tell me about one of these times, and she goes, that's not possible, right? So she goes into the state, wow. and then immediately fires back. The any good feelings had an immediate trigger into her mythology of being unfixable, untreatable, wound in by all of these doctors and all of these failed attempts, et cetera. So that one, you know, in a, in a situation like this, behavioral flexibility r rules and strongest state wins. So essentially people were coming to me to some degree because I was holding a position of well-formedness and that the perturbations of that move through the system and hold the person that I'm interacting with in a way where they can let go. I mean, we've all, we've, we've had experiences where we meet people and they're so present that it's disarming. And, and all of a sudden we're like, we realize we're like an inch outside of ourselves and ahead of ourselves and, and we stop and we're like, oh my God. Yeah. Can I translate yeah. that into woo? Please, please, please. Uh, the, as a meditator, you know how to get to a certain place where you're holding an energetic vibration that is allowing for a shift in the field in the room. And that it becomes an inviting, you're holding the space in a way that the person that you're cluing into is uh, then recognizing on its unconscious level and moving towards. That makes sense? 100%. That's exactly what's happening. Okay. And then inside of that, it's linguistic skills and, you know, metaphors and stuff and noticing what's happening so I can go, like, stop, stop looking. I mean, I've, I've had people where I had to go, you're fucking up my work. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to look over here. You're going to look at this spot right here where every time I ask you what's what's been the best experience of your life, you glance for about a half of a microsecond and then you immediately fire off into every reason that you can't actually look there. Look there. I want you to look there. I want you to imagine that there is a big hungry pit bull that's going to just gnarl into you. You know, I love pit bulls. I'm not saying that they're bad animals. It just came up as a metaphor, right? So th that they're just going to get into you and you're going to just keep your attention there. And I'm going to speak into you what it's like when you're here, because there's something that I know about it that you know even better, because it's how you were born to be. Keep looking. I see you starting to look away. Don't turn your head either. That's cheating because then we can look. And if they go like this, they're still moving their eye accessing because they're rotating it where it is in relation to their head. So you have to keep your head still. So that's like a, a grisly session. And I hold them there until, until they like, you see all of a sudden it melts away and they have the kind of experience you're talking about. It's difficult to meditate if you don't know what you're doing. And even if you do know what you're doing, it takes so long to get there. Which brings us back to how did I get into the tech? NLP helped me structure some architecture, human operating system. I'm doing this work with people. I see how they are when they're at their best, but I'm a child of the peer-to-peer -peer generation. I don't want to do the one-to-many thing. I want to do, how can we all share behavioral software? How can we create a massive field, which is by definition, a, a region in which every point is feeling the same force and we make that force something generative. So it obviously can't just be about the individual. It has to engage our whole culture because we have a culture that has the cultural cloud is filled with viruses. There's economic biases that are bad for people, uh, linguistic biases that are bad for people, 
gender biases that are bad for people, and on and on. You know, the system is designed in some wonky ways. Some of it is because it we're stemming from a wonderful, I love America, but we're stemming from a horse-drawn mentality that's the same thing that designed the initial constitution. And, and I love it. And I love what our government, I love the freedoms. I love our country. And at the same time, you know, I think Joe Rogan uh, on what is it, one of his Netflix specials, he was like, Thomas Jefferson came back. First thing he said is like, what? I wrote this thing with a quill, with a feather. You guys haven't changed anything in this yet? So we need something a little bit more modern, governmental, economic, you know, capitalist, all of this stuff. Yeah, the system ain't working as it is now. It's breaking down. We're so dealing with the breakdown. That. So the human operating system of the individual needs to interact with the cultural cloud of society, of culture, and create a generative feedback loop where we can start to go, what is a future that we can all agree on? Because every good business, every good endeavor has a goal, has, a, has, has something that it starts to move towards. Even if we get Buddhist and someday we go like, there is no goal. We can't start there. We have to start with like, let's make sure that, the, that, that civilization is still existing in 2100. It may not be a bad idea to have a, uh, an ecosystem that is able to support the civilization also existing in 2100. Uh, exactly. Yeah, not a bad idea. So, okay, how are we going to do that? Well, they've been trying to do this since Avalokiteshvara, which is, you know, the reincarnation now is the Dalai Lama, but this is the Bodhisattva of compassion. What better way to go? Every single great meditator has, and philosophers come to, you know, my brother says one of two conclusions, either it's all about love or it's all about nothing. So I like them both. I say, let's drop everything away. We can go, it's really not about anything. Let's go, let's go Werner Earhart. Life is empty and meaningless, and that life is empty and meaningless. Is itself empty and meaningless? You're, an, you're a meaning-making machine. Great. Now let's go back to Crowley. Love. Love because you choose to. Love because you've made that decision over and over again. And now let's just go fully pragmatic and go, all right, but people still want their stuff. People want a, a, an environment that works well. People want to be healthy. Some people you know, they're out of whack because they were given terrible input when they were toddlers. They were told that this color person is bad or that gender person is awful. And, you know, this food is really great, even though it's filled with toxins. And so how do we start to get all of that stuff in a system where we can all collaboratively refine it and we can start to test it and we can rigorously build a system that's safe, secure, trusted, worthwhile, and has each of us at our best as the heart of the programming. So for me, the human operating system was an architecture, theoretical architecture that I put together with, you know, just blatantly stealing from anyone and everyone I could. And then it was just about waiting long enough that the technology started to become available to make it happen. What kind of technologies were you looking for? VR, AR, MR, right? So virtual augmented mixed reality. Um, AI, epigenetic optimization, genetic optimization, ultimately quantum optimization, because, you know, it's not that far off either, at least according to Ray Kurzweil. And before that, what is the fastest, most direct way to measure and optimize and change anyone and everyone's state? It's your brain. It's your brain looped into your body 
So you have a full-on neurosomatic, neurophysiological experience that roots you into a sensorial here and now that's optimized for you having the experience you were designed to have and that you've been able to help design. And now we can get in there and we can actually start to work with that and we can help brains get to where they're going much, much faster. So you geeked out. You started getting into these, these techie things. Uh, did you learn any programming? Did you like come at it from a computer vantage point? Or how did you, how did you, I learned how did you pull a, a modicum of programming. Uh-huh. And, and I hung out with other nerds, but who were better programmers than me. And, you know, there's a point where the, the metaphor, you don't need to go any deeper with the metaphor, right? So The metaphor of programming. The metaphor of programming. Okay. We're not okay. really computers. Right. So it's really useful. You know, people, people used to talk about the, the heart as being infused with four humors. All of a sudden, the steam pump engine came out, and that was like a revelation, and they started calling the heart a pump. It's not a pump either. It's a heart. Even heart is just a word that we put on side of a thing that's inside of us that's doing a thing, right? So all language is kind of messy, but the better metaphors allow us to do more stuff. Heart as pump metaphor allowed people to live longer, allowed us to tinker with the pump better than the four humors metaphor did. Now they know that our heart is filled with some kind of something that allow, that communicates with your brain and creates this you know, incredible field. It's not just your brain, it's your brain and your heart and your gut has neurons in it. So you get the whole system involved. But the, at the end of the day, the brain is a very powerful platform to interact with who you are, how you're going, and start to tweak the way it's all firing to get faster, better, much more long-lasting results. So there is a scene of brain tech folks who are now sharing this information in a collaborative way and discussing how to weave together the different technologies that are now available There's into a, something which is a more, more coherent approach to uh, brain health. Yes. We'll say it's a, it's a small scene uh-huh. currently um, using a, a core approach that combines really the technologies we've been talking about with a heavy dose of the human operating system and a lot of attention from third-party consultants who get the bigger vision. They're excited by the bigger vision. They want to scale this kind of brain health and optimization on a, you know, globally. They want the democratization of, of brain health. And so they've come on board and they're giving from their perspectives, some of them from the TMS perspective, some of them from an EEG perspective, but a lot of people who are now feeding in, here's how to do it better. Here's how to do it with the best, most rigorous scientific methodology. Here's how we continue to improve our client experiences and apply AI so that the results are driven faster, better, deeper, stronger, and continually to evolve what it is that we're doing. So the field, your company, is the epicenter for this, the collaboration that you're, Correct. that you're driving here. Yes. Human operating system. Yes. In 30 seconds or less. 
human, you at your best scaffolded with a, an architecture of the the best behaviors at every level of who you are, what you do, each kind of intelligence you have. And you're, um, and that's a, it's a vision of what that means that's informed by your consciousness work. It's not just about performing better to make more money to get the right house. No, no. It's, okay. a, it's about being fundamentally well-formed, which every person gets to decide for themselves what that means. I, I, again, I like Aldous Huxley in, in uh, what, I, what I look at as his answer to Brave New World was his book, Island. And somewhere in there, he says something like, you know, what's the point of little boys and girls? And it was written in like, I don't know, maybe the 60s. So he says in, in, in Mother Russia or in communist countries, the point of them is to work for the state. And in the West, it is to consume. But here in Pala, it's to become themselves, to become fully human. I think that that's really what it's about. I find that people, when they get there, they, when, they're, when they're really well-formed, they naturally perform at peak. They're naturally satisfied. People still die. Tires still go flat. Sad things still happen, but they don't get lost in that. It's just a river in which something fell and it flows down the stream and they move with it. And they live lives that, you know, what I keep saying is they're, they're these beautiful aesthetic expressions of who they are. And you know they're they're operating at all levels. Their memory works right. Their con their their cognitive functions are firing well. They're, you know, and we're able to do things like reduce. You know, now with, with this stuff, we can reduce the the slow waves that naturally come with age. So memory decline and cognitive slowing, we can we can help your brain stay young. We can trigger neurogenesis. We can trigger neuroplasticity. We can help. The help end the suffering of PTSD, you know, and these are just the getting people out of the ill-formed, out of the red zone, out of bad imprints, and back into, oh my God, I'm okay. And from there, we can begin to optimize. From there, we can go. All right, now your brain is is doing what it was supposed to do all along. Crazy things happen. We weren't taught how to how to make ourselves better, how to get ourselves back to health. But now you don't have to spend decades meditating. Meditate by all means, but let us help you dial that in faster by seeing how your brain responds, what it likes, getting your feedback so that the bus moves forward more quickly. And then once it's healthy, now you're, you're talking about moving to a place where it's like sliders. You go like, you know what? I'm really, I'm, I want to take a week off. I want to take a month off. I'm taking a sabbatical. I want to jam out on my guitar. I want to learn a new instrument. So I turn creativity up and you can change the firing patterns of your brain. You leave the fundamental firing pattern that is you, but you start to tweak it a little bit so that you're a little less left-brained and a little more right-brained. You mean you could actually fine-tune this at the level where you're going to go, I'm about to do a major creative endeavor. I'm about to make something. I'm going to take the time to do something much more creative than what I normally do, having to do my administrative job. I'm going to go paint for a, for a month. And you can fire up those, the neural pathways around creativity so that my painting gets more, like, juicy. Absolutely. That's crazy. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. How did you fumble into that? Like, where did that start to show up? It showed up for me 
with my martial arts instructor was like, you need more awareness of your body. And I said, all right. And I've, you know, I've been practicing awareness of my body for my whole life. So I was like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to do it. But let me get a little help from the brain stuff, right? So we went and I put TMS on this strip, my sensory motor cortex right over here, which is responsible for athletic performance and proprioception. And we activated both sides. And it was like horse doses. You know, I'm, I'm the guinea pig. So, so you're we, doing left and right, both, 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 both sides of the brain, somewhere where that... Right over where the headphones that where we're the headphones wearing basically go. go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we're left and right activation, and about forty minutes later, I was like, "Whoa!" Forty minutes is a long time. You were saying this is like seven to twelve minutes or something. Seven to twelve minutes long. Forty minutes after my session. Oh, I see. Okay. I get home and it was like the floor dropped out, and I went, "Whoa!" And at the time, I, I called up and I was like, "Hey, I feel." Woo! This is. <laughs> And the response that I got was, you asked for a big dose. And I said, I did. And he said, you know, don't worry about it. Just give it another five minutes and it's going to pass. Your brain's just getting used to, you know, we gave you a really strong dose. So your brain is like accepting. It's not where it usually gets its input from. So it's getting it from a whole new place. And sure enough, a few minutes later, I could, I could feel your muscles. I could feel... As you move, I can feel what muscles you're moving in my body. I feel all of my muscles. I can feel temperature changes that are so slight. All of my sensory awareness, internal, external, was through the roof. Down in like dialectic, like internal thoughts, which I don't generally run a lot of internal thoughts anyway, but I'll do visual thoughts, right? So I'm not using a lot of auditory, but I'll see pictures as I'm talking to people. Gone. It was like raw just experience of internal and external. And you had sex after that? Obviously. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Ken, erectile dysfunction is one of the things that you can address through this. Like, libido? It's insane. The brain is connected to everything. It's so cool because it's all tied together. And with a little bit of tinkering, you can take people where they want to go. This is crazy cool. So where and how do you track all of the science that's now being done in this area? Because there must be quite a lot in terms of the research. There is a ton. So the first thing that I first thing that we did is we said <coughs> we we want to be surrounded by medical professionals. Right? So we're we have we have global aims and there's a strong likelihood we'll open our first two centers in the next, we'll say, 14 months here and then another one in Europe. You have one. You, are you open yet? We're, we're open. Mm-hmm. But our full-blown centers, which are, we'll just say, very sexy and very, they hold you. There's relaxation. There's a, it's very experiential. It, you know, experience the field. We, we, it's, again, it's like it's the aesthetic Right, like I've I've had this thing that I've been both loving, but also it's it's a lot of work to carry this thing from when you're 16 years old and 18 and 22 in your mind that you have to wait 20 years for the technology to emerge, and as it's emerging, see all of these other things popping that are sort of like it, and be like, oh, look at that Flow Genome Project. 
oh, consciousness hacking movement. Okay, Mike. But like still hold fast to the vision and wait until the moment arrives. And then now that it's here, like this is about aesthetic expression. My wife is an interior designer. She, she, like her whole life has been like, but is it sexy? So she's just raw and cool and like truth is her primary thing. But everything, the way she moves, the way she talks, everything is just so magnificent about her. And she... You know, the, she's gonna be the, happy to hear that. The, 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 she knows it. I tell her every day. She, okay. the, but the, right. but the, coming back to the science. Sorry, the science. But you were asking about the centers. Okay, the, you know, the they're, they're, they're going to nice. be very nice. They're going to be very nice. I'm excited. The science. So we said, okay, we want to put ourselves about a bunch of medical professionals. So we again, serendipity. We met with Susan Blum, uh, Doctor Susan Blum. She has two. She's a best-selling author of two different books on autoimmune, and uh, and she's incredible. She leads a team of incredible integrative functional practitioners in the Blum Center for Health in Rybrook, and so we put ourselves there. And you know, I thought we were going to get there because she was very. She was like, "Let's do this. This is perfect. It fits." And we got there, and I'm like expecting a ticker tape parade at our first meeting with the full medical team, and it was like the trial. I was Joseph K. They were they were like, tell us, tell us about the science. Which was which you know, it, it, at first I was like, oh, so much less than a ticker taper. <laughs> they are way less excited than I thought they were going to be. But it really speaks to how rigorous their thinking about the ecology of wellness is. So. That's the first thing that we did. We put ourselves at the center of an incredibly generative team led by a superwoman who is amazing. And the way that they hold what real wellness and medicine needs to be. Then we started hiring consultants. We said, okay, we're, we want people who are incredibly, you know, who are credible from, they're good people they get the vision. They're not bogged down by the extremely siloed nature of academia and research and science. EEG applied to this specific thing, yielded these results in this one test. Therefore, it's the only thing that it is. And it has nothing to do with TMF. It was like, no, okay, we need to rethink about all of it. Our goal is to create a system that optimizes people and that's our bias, and we understand that, but we understand that all testing has biases, and we're not going to fudge results. We need, to, we need to have third parties that are building the best, most rigorous scientific methodology for reviewing what we're doing, building credibility and legitimization into it, building that trust with people, building the safety, and then applying AI, machine learning, to find things, it's, it's as objective as you can get. It's a machine that's just looking at data points and it finds things, A, it becomes predictive. Here's what you're doing and it starts making hopefully better predictions, faster ways to get results. And second, it starts to find things that we didn't even know were there because it's seeing correlations in, in data points that we weren't even looking at or didn't even know, you know existed. And are you publishing these findings? Or are they, where are they being made available? So the... Published findings will begin to roll out later this year. Right now, it's just been getting everything dialed in on the client experience side, using past published. I mean, 
there's thousands of articles on the effectiveness of TMS, EEG, neurofeedback that are rolling out every year at this point. So the field is very well established, not our field. The field of you know, neuromodulation is very well established. We'll start putting ours out later in 2019. Is there like a conference that these guys go to? Like where is this There's lots of conferences. There's lots of different conferences. Yeah, there's a neurofeedback one. There's a TMS one. There's an EEG one. Fascinating. And then I know there's been all this research that's being done, but when you start to weave these things together, how does somebody know that it's safe? Then how do they know that it's safe? Well, they can do the research for one. Uh, I mean, well, the FDA approved TMS. How do they know that in the moment, well, how do they know it's safe? Well, it's because we have a, a board certified nurse practitioner who is doing, looking at your brain and delivering the protocols who, you know, we know that they're, you know, sometimes there's mild irritation. Almost rarely the, you, you see, um, you know, there are some small contraindications. People get a headache sometimes the first time that they do TMS, but we use TMS to cure migraines. So there, there is a very small chance or possibility of seizure from TMS, but it's extremely rare. And it's usually from someone who has already had seizures or is prone to epilepsy. We don't treat those people with TMS. Even if they have that, we're going to think twice before treating them with neurofeedback. So you got to be well hydrated. We're going to give you, here's the protocols of everything to, to make sure that you are healthy and safe as you begin this experience with us. But it's being used all over the world and it's incredibly safe. And if you look at the, you know, look at the side effects of drugs, far, far more likely that you are going to have contraindicated effects. I'm fascinated by where you see this being, where you see it going in five years. In five years, I see we'll have global locations, but really what I care about is at-home technology that anyone can use. So, you know, we're looking at, at scaling so that anyone can put it on, they can put in their issues and their symptoms, they can put in their goal, and with 20 minutes of training a day, you know, m multiple times a week, they're going to start to have really profound results, real profound differences in the way that they're functioning. And that's just the beginning. That's just like, that's the, that's the dark night that gets you started. And then all of a sudden, once you're, just, you're like, whoa, there's so much more than just curing my PTSD or my depression. Now you've entered into a whole nother world where anything is possible. People dial in their nutrition, they exercise their body, their muscles. Why not make it easy for them to train the areas of their brain, their mind, that are going to give them the, the full life results that they want? Fascinating. This is just such a wild territory that you're developing. I am really glad we had some time to dive into this together. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? Oh, uh, our website, experiencethefieldfield.com. Or they can come visit us in Rybrook at the Blum Center for Health. So Rybrook, New York, it's, yeah, it's Westchester. Oh, cool. Okay. So about an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half up yeah. Manhattan. Uh, out of Manhattan. Uh, I learned a lot from this. Well, thanks. It's been uh, a fun conversation. Got me. Got my blood all boiling. That's good. Mine boiling, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
I want to thank Devin White for joining us, and you too for being with us. You can find out more about Field on their website, experiencethefield.com. Also want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.